Welcome to Heterodox Out Loud. I'm your host, John Tomasi, president of Heterodox Academy. On each episode of Heterodox Out Loud, I'll be inviting you to join me on an intellectual adventure, an adventure across the fascinating and perilous terrain of open inquiry on our campuses. You'll be meeting leading university professors, some heterodox presidents and deans, and some entrepreneurial students too. Our aim in every episode will be to give you an insider's view of the state of open inquiry on our campuses, the perils and the possibilities too. So let's get ready for another adventure into heterodoxy. Is there a role for government in protecting academic freedom? In the United States, we're seeing experiments about this question at the state level, most notably in North Carolina and in Florida. In this, in this episode of Heterodox Out Loud, we consider what we might learn by taking an international perspective. Our focus will be on the UK Higher Education Reform Act, which was signed into law by King Charles III on May 2023. Our guest today will be Eric Kaufman. Eric is a distinguished professor of politics at Burbick College at the University of London. More than an academic, though, Eric is also active in the world of public policy. He's a senior fellow at the think tank Policy Exchange and at the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. He's also an adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Eric is widely recognized for contributing key ideas to the UK Higher Education Reform Act, a major government effort to protect academic freedom within universities. How is the government acting to protect academic freedom in England? What might, what might we learn from the, from the English example? Let's find out. Eric Kaufman, welcome to Heterox Out Loud. Thanks, John. It's uh, a delight to be here. And so you came into the city, into here, into New York. What did you say just this week, a few days ago? Yeah, a few days ago. Yeah, and uh, you know, um, I've I've been fairly busy, but uh, I really enjoyed the Heterodox Academy event last night. Um, and uh, here we are. Thank you. And, and just for our listeners, last night um, we had the opening of the Center for Academic Pluralism um, here at HXA, and Eric joined us among among others. It was a, a really lovely, a lovely evening. Um, so let's get into our, our conversation. Sounds good. And we're going to be talking about university reform, uh, of which you're obviously a really le- a leading expert. And I just want to start with something you wrote in the Wall, in the Wall Street Journal piece a couple of years ago. And I'll just read, I'll read your line. Quote, unless reforms come from outside the academy, universities will continue to be monocultures in which conservative ideas are not given a fair hearing, close quote. Tell us more about that view. Yeah, I mean, that sort of came on the tail end of a, of a sort of larger set of survey-based research that I did, and, and that was far, part of a CSPI report on uh, academic And tell us freedom. what CSPI is. So that's the, the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. It's a small kind of California-based uh, think tank, and, and the, it was sort of a, it was a 150-page report looking at u- trends in the U.S., U.K., in Canada based on surveys of faculty and graduate students and using mer- various different methods, uh, some of which had you know, very complete sample sizes, some of which were more opt-in surveys. But they all sort of told the same story, uh, which is that the level of self-censorship uh, is very high, especially amongst uh, those who are conservative. So it's, it was in the range of 70% of uh, Academics in the United States who lean right said that they self-censored uh, in some a- at least some aspect of teaching, research, or discussion. Seventy percent who lean right. Yeah, but that's a small percentage, isn't it? It's a small percentage, and and, and, and this was a main, main, mainly a social scientist survey. So we, I mean, it would be something on the order of five percent. Uh, in the UK, it would be pushing ten percent, let's say. So it's a small minority, but it's just interesting that but consistently but, but that. But let me be. Yeah. Sure, I'm sorry. Let me be sure. I, I captured that point. So, in the UK, there are substantial, maybe twice as many conservative people who identify as conservative, as we now say, as mm-hmm. in the US. I'm not sure whether it's twice as large. I think it would be maybe 50 percent higher. Okay. Uh, right. But but there's a certain amount of noise in the data. We can't be 100 percent sure on okay. that. Okay. Thank you. I mean, there isn't big. There's not a huge difference between the U.S., U.K., and Canada in these numbers. Right. Um, maybe slightly higher in Britain. Yeah. Right. 
Okay, but I'm sorry. I, I, yeah, no, and, and 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 actually, some surveys would suggest in continental Europe it's even slightly higher. There's slightly more conservatives in the social sciences. But are they the, royalists? <laughs> Monarchists? <laughs> yeah. Run that. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they they want to get rid of democracy. But yeah, so in that context, right? It, it, and the other thing really was, you know, there were questions around willingness to hire. For so, for example, uh, a third of British academics we polled would not hire a known supporter of the Brexit side, in the, wow. which is the side wow. that won the, the referendum in 2016. Regardless right? of the quality of the research, regardless yeah. of the person's prestige, regardless of what they would bring to the well, graduate well, program. Yeah, this was not, I mean, the question was more simply, would you hire a known uh, Brexit supporter for a job? Um, right. and, and in the U.S. case, say, a known Trump supporter, about 40% wouldn't hire a known Trump supporter for a job. Interestingly, in Canada, that number is 45. So in Canada, I mean, U.S. politics is obviously is all over the news in Canada. And they, I, 45% of Canadian academics wouldn't hire a known Trump supporter for a job. But, so, it, but yeah. it's still striking, isn't it? Because when, oh, yeah. when, when, they, when they answer that question, uh, no, I wouldn't, they're saying that there were, that political consideration would override, in fact, all these professional obligations that they have, solemn obligations, perhaps legal obligations, on, imposed on them by their university to be arbiters of excellence in, in, in academic things. And, yes. yet, and they know that. They're, the, the faculty positions are not theirs to give out. Right. They're entrusted by their universities, professors are, to make these decisions based on excellence. And yet they report on a quiet, in the quiet of a survey, right. I, wouldn't, I, would, I would abandon all that right. if the person supported Donald Trump. Right now, I should. That's why I, I, should, that's why yeah, I hear you. No. I should qualify this as saying the the, the okay. actual, There were two, there was a sort of technique I used there called a list experiment. So in the straight up question, it was maybe twenty seven, roughly in the U.S. case, about twenty five, twenty seven percent who said they wouldn't, who openly said they wouldn't hire. But on this list experiment technique, which I won't, don't have time to go into, it allows you to get it revealed discrimination, and so it was more. It was forty percent on the revealed. Uh, test and then in Britain only ten percent would openly admit that they discriminate, but in a sort of revealed on the list experiment it was thirty, thirty three or thirty. And so yeah, I think that so there is some people are sheepish about it, but they would essentially discriminate. Now there have been a whole series of other papers that have been done. Jonathan Haidt of course has has done work on this as well. Uh, in terms of not being willing to, uh, you know, accept a, a right-leaning paper, promotion application. Right. So there, there, right. since 2012, we've had a number of studies. So the bottom line then is how do you then get at that kind of a, a culture, right, that, that is uh, leading to viewpoint discrimination, leading to chilling effects and self-censorship. Um, and we've had a kind of history in Donald Downs's book. I mean, he talks about that, you know, at Wisconsin, they had a few golden years where they got a consensus around this idea of free speech being important as an important value. But then it breaks away. And Donald Downs, I, was, I just want to mention, and I'm sure our listeners know, is a, a real champion of free speech. Donald and I served together on the Princeton Principles mm -hmm. Commission um, just a couple of months ago. And he's a, re a really remarkable person. So he described there being a, having been a brief golden age at Wisconsin, and then yes. it went away. Well, yeah, and I think that's – it seems like when the stars align and you can sometimes get co consensus between, you know, the leadership and, and a certain group of unusually active academics, then you can maybe get some free speech for a while to, to, to take root, but then it, it ultimately can't last. And I guess that's kind of maybe been the lesson, even on the free speech code front, that you can get sporadic successes, but – systematically you're going to lose. And that's maybe why I don't believe the universities can reform themselves from within. Um, I think it's got, therefore, to come from government from without. Um, and, and that's kind of, I guess, the debate, right? I, I'm, I, I think it's very important to have, you know, AFA and, and, and Heterodox Academy. The Academic Freedom Alliance. Pushing, you know, for reform, trying to persuade. You need persuasion because ultimately you can get the best legislation in the world, but if you lose the culture, then it's not going to matter anyway. So you need both. That's but but, I, yeah. but let, let me, let me, let me um, separate, uh, separate a couple of different things. So I asked you, reading your own quotation, uh, you, you say that um, universities need to have, the re reforms need to come from the outside. Right. But I sort of see a variety of different buckets, or if you like, agents from the outside who seek to bring reform, or we might, who, or, or we, might, we might say, different agencies we might, whose help we might seek. So there is the one you mentioned, this government. There are also groups that um, present legal, external legal pressures on universities. Right. 
I think of fire being that way. The AFA also is that an AFA describes itself. I'm a member of all these groups. Yeah. <laughs> but AFA describes itself as NATO for professors. One professor is attacked. All the professors see that attack on them, and they bind together to protect. But again, it's from the outside protecting the attack. There are investigative outsiders. There are groups like the College Fix. I think increasingly the National Association for Scholars, of which I'm also a member, doing this investigative reports is kind of taking an outsider approach, revealing the things going on. There's also, from the outside, I suppose, uh, donors, alums, who can cut their, cut their giving, for example. So that's a whole range of, that's, that, I listed four, legislative, let's call it, uh, legal, let's call it, investigative, and perhaps financial. Those are all outside forces. Um, do you see, how do you, how do you, how do you, when you survey that range of external agents, which ones do you think are, can help with this cultural problem? Well, or how, think, which ones are most important? I think they're all important. And are, am I missing one? Are there, are there others? Yeah. Oh, well, I there are others this. in other countries, like Free Speech Union in Britain is uh, doing a, a fantastic job. It's not just dealing with academics, but it deals with a lot of academics under, tell, under pressure. Tell, tell us more about that. Tell well, us about it, it was union. set up a number of years ago by Toby Young. Uh, they provide legal advice, advice on how to crowdfund um, for legal cases. Um, they, they work with the press. They work with legislators. So there's, they're now, they just recently... Uh, have worked on the, um, oh, God, the online... There basically was an online harms bill which threatened to be relatively draconian in terms of penalties for online speech. And so they'll be involved in those fights to water down some of the uh, nebulous provisions around hate speech and misinformation that are sometimes sort of drafted into these laws. And are they focused on universities specifically? No. So they're sort of like the ACLU of old in the U.S., I suppose. Kind of, yeah. I think they're kind of... Fulfilling a fire-like function within Britain, but they're very new. They don't have the sort of history that fire does. But yeah, so these are all very important. Um, you know, you might say, well, why do you need government if you've got, you know, good backup and and people know about that? And I agree that Free Speech Union and Fire and and Heterodox Academy, I mean, they're all absolutely critical, and more and more academics know about them. But and there's always a but, right? That there is this phrase, the process is the punishment, which means that... The process is the punishment. Yeah. Um, and that means that even if ultimately you get off the hook, the, the, the uncertainty, you might be suspended, that you don't know what's going to happen for sure, it's very unsettling psychologically. Now, I do think fire and FSU make a huge difference psychologically, so they are also making yes. a big difference psychologically. But... The, you can make the argument, I think, that, that because of the cost involved, the time involved in going the legal route, um, that in a way, if we want to deal with the chilling effects, we need something more proactive than just a reactive, oh, I got sued, I'm going to contact FIRE or, or FSU. You know, it's, I just think that if you have a, you know, an, something like in the UK case where there's a dedicated office to protecting and promoting freedom of speech, then it's a real-time process where, you know, universities can't try it on. Because they can play a whack-a-mole game where they sort of throw an, you know, get you investigated, haul you through a bunch of tribunals, and then back off. And that sets an example, and it chills other behavior. So part of the reason I don't think it's sufficient just to have uh, the legal remedies is, or, or, or sort of uh, union-style defense reactive mechanisms, is that it doesn't actually address... Uh, proactively, this issue of the process being the punishment. Good, good. So I, I want to talk about the UK um, situation, which is just fascinating, but let's hold that off for a couple more minutes. Um, still just thinking about the groups, the, the approaches I just mentioned. You know, I think of HXA as playing a different role than the groups I mentioned. I think HXA is perhaps uniquely positioned to play an insider role. But let's, we'll save mm-hmm. that to a little mm-hmm. bit later, too. Still, again, thinking about outs- outside agents coming in. Um, there was a, I think you know John Ellis, who is an emeritus professor of German literature at UC Santa Cruz, and I think the, I think the California chapter president of the National Association of Scholars. Anyway, he's a person whose, whose work I find I find really interesting. He's, um, you know, kind of like the, the um, skeptical. Cons- I'll, 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 I'll gently call him the skeptical conservative. <laughs> right. He's actually right. a little more than he's a little more prickly yeah. than, than skeptical. <laughs> but 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 John Ellis writes that. Um, I'll paraphrase. He says that the, the, the university cannot be saved, cannot be saved period, 
um, because the problem was with, is with personnel, or at least it can't be saved in any foreseeable uh, timeline without a dramatic change of personnel. What do you make of that idea that, you know, we, we mentioned before that the percentages of, of professors who see the world from a set of, say, let's call them conservative premises, as opposed to the people who see the world from a set of, let's call them progressive premises, is minuscule. So the personnel differential is, is huge, and John Ellis does a really nice job of, among other people, mm. sketching that out. So he thinks the problem is personnel. If the problem is personnel, how can an external agent affect that? Or is the problem not personnel? I think he's right. I mean, Alice's book, The Breakdown of Higher Education, is a fantastic book. And um, I actually think there's a lot of truth in what he says. Now, I, I've, what learned, I th- I've learned so much from him. Yeah. What I think is that, you know, you've got two processes. One is institutional punishment, top-down institutional sanctions. Um, the other thing you have is this peer-to-peer, you know, what we might call a horizontal peer pressure. Uh, ostracism and so on, which which extends to, you know, not publishing you, not promoting you, uh, and, and so on. Um, both of these mechanisms are going on. I, I think that something like the Higher Education Freedom Bill in Britain can address that more vertical punishment-based uh, system where it can prevent your university from censoring you, from punishing you, um, and that's very important. I, I think this is the University of Chicago-style uh, trifecta, I think Dorian Abbott calls it, where you, <laughs> where you also have the Calvin Report, which I think is important and isn't part of the U.K. legislation, which I think it should have been. But and, which, for li- and for yeah. our listeners, the Calvin Report is the classic statement of institutional neutrality, the idea that the university, as the report says, is the home and sponsor of, cri- of critics, but is not itself the critic. That means universities should refrain from making statements on behalf of the faculty, and rather allow the individual faculty members to speak. And the trifecta is the Chicago Principles, the Free Speech Principles, the Calvin Report, which I just mentioned, and the Schulz Report, which is a remarkable document about the idea of merit. So, but but please, so 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 this is all uh, very important, and and that goes beyond the UK legislation because it includes the those last two, uh, which I think are important. That, that, and I think really institutional n- neutrality should extend down to anyone with an official administrative position, down to department heads. Good. Now, as Good. academics, absolutely, they can say whatever opinions they want. But if they are going to speak in an official capacity, I don't think they should be putting forth opinions on any political matter. Um, and the so, Calvin Report, again, if I just, yes. the Calvin Report is very clear that, in fact, um, it's not only the university as a whole, but it's also the subunits which should not speak. The proper unit of critic right. is the individual faculty member, the individual mind. So anyway, but yeah, just, and, and just, I think just, just as you said, I think that would go go a certain distance towards re- cutting back on the hostile environment. That and again, that conservative. Let's say if we take right of center academics in Britain, Canada, and the U.S., about seven in ten would say their departments are hostile climates for their beliefs, right? As opposed to only about twenty twenty two percent or something of those on the left. So uh, it's this hostile climate effect for people's political beliefs that is also shaping the, the conditions within the institutions. But why is Alice right? I think because even if you were to address these problems with institutional punishment and even institutional uh, institutions taking positions on political issues, it's, you haven't actually been, you can't really deal with the peer pressure stuff, the social ostracism, and even to some extent the political discrimination in terms of networks and publishing and promotion and all that stuff. And unfortunately, you know, you, you look at the FIRE student surveys. I did a little chart using the 2022 data, and you can, if you plot the proportion of li- you know, liberal and conservative in the student body along the sort of horizontal axis, and then you look at the proportions saying that um, they don't, you know, they self-censor in discussions on the vertical axis. What you see is that essentially conservative students in any kind of left-leaning environment are self-censoring, you know, generally at 40 points more than, than those on the left, except when you get to the small handful of conservative-dominated student bodies, like Hillsdale is off the charts. And at Hillsdale, the left-leaning students are self-censoring at not quite, but almost the rate of, of conserv- conservative students in, let's say, liberal arts colleges. Uh, and so I think that sort of tells you a lot. And also some, some other surveys have said you know, to, to students, what are you afraid of in terms of not expressing yourself? Your peers, 
social media or or your professors and most of these surveys tend to find that it's the peers that they're more afraid of than their professors or the, of, than the university. So I would say that even the best legislation, the best policies, the University of Chicago policies will only get you maybe 30-40% of the way or perhaps even less and that if it's down to peer pressure effects right. and ostracism, then that is a compositional effect. Now, we could imagine a situation in which the character of progressivism changes to be, become more liberal and tolerant again, in which case this problem would be addressed. And that, that is perhaps the longer-running battle that maybe Heterodox Academy and others are trying to fight, is to sort of liberalize progressivism. Yeah, that's, I think that's right about HXA. Let me ask you um, a, a more general question about this. And again, I'm still thinking about this Personnel, the problem is with personnel um, claim from John Ellis and, and many others, of course. Um, so in, in, the United, in the context of the U.S., the classic, there's a classic statement of, of the ideal of academic self-governance. It comes from the 1915 declaration by the AAUP, the American Association of University Professors, of which John Dewey, as we always intone, was one of the, was one of the, was one of the founding members, which gives it a certain um, cachet in many quarters, not all, but in many quarters. But, but, there, it, but that document um, says that to have um, academic freedom, to have open inquiry, you have to have control, you have to have academic self-governance. Because only the professors, they're the only people who are experts on these topics, only they can know and can judge who the best professors are. So you can't have the trustees, you cannot have the legislators, you can't have other people deciding essential things like personnel selection, nor, nor, nor can you have them doing basic questions about how a classroom should be organized, what should be taught, what department should exist or should not exist, and so on. So that was you know, more than 100 years ago now. It was the first, it was the beginnings in the U.S., the beginnings of the, of the idea of this modern research university. There would be a place for open inquiry, defended by and structured on an ideal of academic self-governance. Now, through time, and we can sort of trace the path dependencies and explain why it went this way, the universities have become increasingly monocultures, as you, as you say and others say, too. What do you make of that? What do you make of this idea of academic self-governance? And this is going to lead to the conversation about the UK, so that's yes. coming. But still, just as, what, what do you think about ac academic self-governance as an ideal? I think it's a, I think it's an excellent ideal, and I'm you know when I was you know as a, as a professor, I've been very much in favor of that because yes, it is the, the case that departments know best what they want and what you know the kinds of person that they the kinds of academic programs they wish to offer. However, <laughs> could John Dewey and others have foreseen that the threats to academic freedom? would come from the faculty itself. Good. Uh, I don't think so. Um, you know, there are, there are different kinds of challenges to, to freedom. Um, the classic challenge to freedom comes from an autocrat or from the government, and so in that sense, that's the First Amendment in the United States. But I think people forget an older tradition of concern over private violence. Um, okay. So private actors nice. and other kinds of intermediate institutions that actually can pose a threat to your liberty. And it can be the case that actually the government is more liberal than these intermediate institutions or private actors. And in that Interesting. situation, Interesting. so if you look at Thomas Hobbes and, and you go back to some of John Locke, I mean, this idea of the government protecting your natural rights uh, That's right. against those who might threaten them. And, and we're actually, I think, more in a situation like that. Y you can see some precursors. So if the University of Mississippi doesn't want to allow black students to come to it, uh, to take courses, or to have the same rights as other students, there was a role for the government. And let me just add, that, and, yeah. and let's imagine, as was I think the case, right. that the academic self-governance at that university said we choose to maintain these policies of excluding people of color, for example. Right. So, it's, right. so now, now it's gone awry. Right? So this is, a, <laughs> right. this is a, yeah. a kind of a vivid example of academic self-governance, I think, gone awry. Yeah, and, and so, and, and even, you know, I, there was a poll of Harvard professors in, in the 40s, you know, should a communist be permitted to teach right. uh, two to one against? Right. Uh, and now, and so, so should they then be dismissing somebody who's, who's a communist from the faculty. So there are definitely situations where you can get illiberalism coming from the faculty and, and, and 
possibly a situation where the government actually takes a more liberal approach that defends rights. So I think in this three-tier model, um, that's when government actually has a role in preventing censorship. So do universities have the right to censor because they have academic freedom? No. I'd say academic freedom inheres in the in the academic staff and students, and therefore university autonomy, it's a nice to have. We want to maximize it, but if it is becoming you know, authoritarian, tyrannical, whatever, then it needs to be uh, limited in a restricted way. Let, let me be sure I understand. Yeah. So we have this ideal of in a liberal democratic um, government, other being a superstructure of government that has the ability and the obligation to protect individual rights and then in, in, in between that governmental structure and those individuals with rights that need to be defended by that government, at, at some, in some cases, we have intermediate institutions, for example, universities. And these, uni- and these institutions have various functions, and they play their roles in different ways. But the universities have this interesting claim of special sovereignty because of this idea of academic self-governance being the key, the way to protect academic freedom. So now let me see what you're saying here. If the government has a role to protect, protect individual rights, but we think there's going to be some space for academic sovereignty, self-governance, wouldn't it be a very limited range of cases and, exi- and instances at which the government should intervene on the institution to protect those rights? They can't be getting in there, I don't think. Maybe it will tell me what you think. Mm. If, if someone's killing someone, of course the government needs to get involved. If someone's maybe violating a First Amendment right, uh, what we call, the U.S. called the First right, Amendment, right? right yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe due process rights are being violated. People are brought up in front of kangaroo courts, and this you know terrible yeah. things that have happened in so many universities. But that's still a pretty limited range of things in which the government should be involved. The, in the case where the professor says, "I wouldn't vote for a Trump supporter," that's not a violation of a basic right. I don't think. Maybe there is some issue with employment law that we could. But I'm not, Can you help me here a little bit? Like, what are you, no, right. on that model? Isn't it a very limited thing the government can do? It is. It, but that's all that we're really talking about. Is only when, you know, faculty step over particularly egregious red lines. Okay, good. Would any of this come into play? So okay, if, good. If they want to, you know, if a university wants to censor somebody who is expressing perfectly legal opinions. Uh, or doing okay. research that happens to offend some some people, but is or, or, is or, or everyone possibly, yeah, everyone. or everyone, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then 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 the government has a role to prevent that university from censoring. That's Good. that's all this is, and it's Good. it's in practice only a very small number of instances of this. For the most part, faculty will have their autonomy to do the hiring, to pursue uh, the directions they think pedagogically makes sense uh, nice. for them. So this is not like an attack on faculty self-governance, but it is, a, for, for in certain specific instances, a limit on that. And I, that's sort of the way I would see the good. higher education bill in Britain. Yeah. Okay, good. So yeah, we, yeah. We've, we're finally moving to the topic that we both most want to talk about. And I, I should mention also to our listeners that we, in the Center for Academic Pluralism, we have a workshop uh, every Friday afternoon, and we have either visiting, we have either um, resident fellows presenting work or a, a curriculum that we have on open inquiry that we read classic documents like the Schultz Report or the, the Calvin Committee Report and discuss together. And occasionally when we have a guest in the studio, in the podcast studio, we ask that person to join the, the seminar and we do the seminar on his work. And today, after this podcast, um, Eric's going to be joining the, 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 the seminar to talk about the UK reform bill. So now here we are okay. <laughs> at last. So you, you played a, a key role as I understand it, and in the recently passed higher education freedom of speech bill in the UK, maybe you won't say you played a key role, but I am aware that I, I understand you did a lot of that. You were very involved in some of the thinking that led to that bill. Can you tell us about what the act is? Just what are the basics? What's 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 going on? Go, yeah, yeah. Let what we were just saying. Tell us, tell us what happened. Okay. Well, I mean, really, this is an idea that was sort of hatched in what I what po- political scientists call a policy network, a, a series of academics, people in think tanks, perhaps some journalists and politicians who are in a network who are concerned about academic freedom. And you know, essentially, at, there's a think tank called Policy Exchange, which, of course, where we had somebody who became a special advisor to the education minister, and so we had a sort of you know, favorable conditions, perhaps, for influencing the thinking of certain politicians. Um, we issued a couple of reports, one in 2019 and one in 2020, on academic freedom in Britain. 
Um, I did a lot of the survey side. Um, other colleagues, um, Tom Simpson at Oxford, for example, did more on the uh, legal, philosophical. And, and what that did was it just brought a bit of attention to the lay of the land as regarded self-censorship and, and political discrimination and whatnot and, and what the problem was, and then perhaps some suggested legal remedies, and then through a bit of back and forth um, with special advisors and with the government, eventually they we got a commitment to put it on the Conservative Manifesto 2019, which which was key, because once it's on the manifesto, they have to address it. It's amazing. They can't just let it drop. It's Whereas fascinating. This is what, what can happen is even though they'll say yes, 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 it can get subsumed under you know sure. other priorities rise above. And yeah, and so it took a it took a long time. I mean, it took, you know, I guess it was three years, four years but for, for this legislation to get across the line with amendments. It came, it, you know, it was voted through entirely on party lines. Um, That's right. Yeah, and so... I the, watched that. Which, which tends to be, you know, it can sometimes be the case on these issues because the universities and academics are strong constituencies in the, in particularly Labour Party. Um, right, in, in, right. In Labour Party activism, and so strong opposition from the Labour Party on all of these, uh, on and, the bill. And by the way, this, yeah. it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that this bill would be passed along party lines. Yeah. Because you would think that, um, at least we like to imagine here in the U.S., that most people think that shouting people down or using violence against a speaker is beyond the pale, and it's only the fringe who think that. But it's interesting and maybe worrying. Maybe there's other reasons. Maybe there are strictly political reasons for signaling. But it's interesting that in in the U.K. that bill would be passed along party lines only. Were there no? There, there were some people crossing over, presumably. No, there were none. It was strictly uh, party lines. It was lines. very party line. Um, I wasn't aware of that. And because I'm sorry, when was that yeah. vote roughly? Um, I'm trying to think when the actual God was it 2020 maybe that that the actual oh, okay. vote took, may have been 2020. But the bill the bill that. the bill was signed into law in, in 20 uh, just this spring I think May well, or something. right because it it then had to go you you have a law that's passed in the House of Commons it, there's a first reading right, there's, right, there's multiple right. readings and then it goes into goes into the House of Lords which yeah. is the upper chamber for yes. scrutiny and you have multiple readings and you go back and forth and so this whole process is a very much you know there are amendments that are tabled. Some of them make it through, some don't. So one of the right. amendments that, that we were kind of pushing for was this right of action, uh, if your academic freedom is violated, to actually you know, be able to action that in, in court. And as a, sta- tort, as, a, as yeah. a statutory tort. Yeah, statutory, statutory tort. So there was a sort of, that was kind of the last battle. And, and some were saying, look, we should just give up on this because um, it, we, it threatens to derail the whole bill. And, and there were all these tactical considerations. But ultimately... Um, the conservatives. Sure. Yeah. Let, let, let me go back and be sure for myself, but also for our listeners, that I understand what that that piece of it would be. So, yeah. as I understand it, it would mean that if an individual were, um, let's say, invited to give a talk at a university, and um, students or faculty at that university shouted the shouted that person down, um, maybe denigrated their character, maybe put posters around campus calling them a racist or whatever it might be. And so the person was deplatformed, and um, his character was impugned. Let's say maybe falsehoods were said about him. Who knows what? That that person would have a legal recourse to sue, had standing to sue the university. Is that what? It would yeah, be? that's right. And it might have also to do with um, you suffer a detriment for things that you say, so you don't get research funds. You don't get. Uh, oh, even that. Oh, yeah. so, so it's so, broader. So, it could, it's so it's broader. not just that deplatforming it's in a formal sense. It's not just deplatforming. Yeah, it's, it's, oh, it's if broader. you suffer a detriment for for uh, your research or speech, and and then so so in, and also so that is also part of what this is about. Is you can have an have a course of action uh, against your university. Um, well, let me, sorry, let me just stop yeah. you. Let me understand how wide that is. Then, so for example, one of the, one of our uh, star visiting fellows this year is Elizabeth Weiss, the anthropologist. You heard right. give a talk last night at the yeah, opening. Yeah, excellent, yeah. Fa- fabulous, right? She's she's amazing. As you heard last night, Elizabeth is an anthropologist who has views. There's a big debate going on in anthropology about who gets to decide which human remains should be allowed to be studied by science, including Paleolithic ones, and which human remains should be returned to the earth or to the tribes, whoever it might be. And it's a very interesting, fascinating debate. But it's being lately, it's been sort of moved off. The debate's been stopped, and there's a, a sort of a deplatforming of anyone who advocates the scientific access to the bones. And so, Elizabeth, now to bring back to your example of the torque, 
Elizabeth was denied access to her university's collection of skeletal remains, a collection to which she'd been allowed access and other anthropologists were continuing to be allowed access for, for a decade. So she was denied access now to the key research things. Is that the kind of thing, for example, that that tort would be uh, would, would allow action upon that tort reform? Yeah, exactly. exactly. So deny. So so that's a that's a perfect example of where uh, you've suffered a detriment of some kind, right? It doesn't mean you're fi doesn't have to be you're being fired. It could just mean that you you aren't promoted, you aren't given access to certain things. So so that's the kind of thing that this is about. Now, of course, we've fascinating. Argu it's the fascinating. argument was, uh, was really on the other side. Well, and of course, if you know, if this censorship and, and if these things aren't hitting your tribe, it can seem like a very minor deal. And, right. and, and I think that is really the sort of sentiment. It was like, well, there's very few of these incidents, and right. therefore... Right. It's a tempest in a teapot, and it's a moral panic, and all this is sort of the the way it's talked about. And, and really, what we were saying was, actually, this is this is something that is affecting tens of thousands yes. of staff and students. Because if you look at that self censorship, you know, yes, we can talk about the number of people who lose their jobs or are, are no platformed as an, as a small number of the total right. denominator of students right. and staff. But if you actually look at the proportion of particularly political minorities on campus, gender critical feminists, conservatives, who are self-censoring in the right. faculty and the student body. Now you're talking about tens, hundreds of thousands. And so this is actually a massive issue. And it is not just about the small number of high-profile cases that it's, make it into the press. Right? It's fascinating. Yeah. And, and you, know, you and I both know as university professors that there's, there are all these so many smaller things within our profession that can be decided by one's, the popularity of one's political views. So, for example... Right. If a person aspires to be a department chair, I'm not sure why anyone would aspire. <laughs> I don't know anyone would, would aspire to be a department chair, but if someone aspires to be a department chair, and that person has, you know, one of these unorthodox views, that's the kind of thing I think where the person we all know that person either should be quiet in the view or should just give up their ambition to be whatever it is, department chair, or, or say, or to be the director of a center or something that, something like that. Are those the kind of things that might also fall within the purview of the statutory tort? Well, n not necessarily. If it is, if it is sort of peer-driven and it is not within the gift of, okay, say, good. the university, then, then I don't think that you could. You know, just so being ostracized by your colleagues, you can't really. Okay. No, that doesn't fall within. And this is part of the good. the issue that I was mentioning is this horizontal dynamic. And, and Cass Sunstein writes about this in in his book Conformity. You know, whenever yes. you have an organization where it's all about social ties then even something like not being willing to have lunch with somebody can have good. a powerful effect, right? So, so right. I just think That's this really is not going to deal with the arguably more powerful issue of good. even political discrimination. I would say, uh, you know, and we've had debates I, with, with some of the people who've been involved in the bill, but I'm not sure it would protect you from uh, political discrimination. I, I don't, I'm not sure that it would do that. And, 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 and so I think there are... It's a sort of it's a small part of the problem that it will address. I okay, so address, let's you know. so let's, let's that, that's very helpful. Let's zero in now on and get really clear on what exactly does the bill address. So what uh, there's a free there's a creation of a free speech champion. Yeah. So so what, what's what's that all about? So what it does is the bill it creates a, a an office of of essentially a director of academic freedom, which would be a free speech czar with an office of ten. A free speech czar. Well, yeah, we I, have so we have so many czars yeah. in the U.S. We do not have we do not have a free speech czar. But that would yeah, be yeah. fabulous. Well, that's one czar. That's one czar I could <laughs> yeah, get behind. Exactly. Well, academic freedom director, right? Yeah. So, so. Um, but it's an ombudsperson or something like that. No, right? no. So they're separate. So, so the um, academic freedom director will have the power to issue with his. Uh, staff, I, it's a he, I happen to know who it is, but um, will have, have the power to actually issue, for example, guidance on what university policies should look like. Universities are obligated not just to protect, but to promote. So at least once a year, they have to inform students of their uh, free academic freedoms and, and inform them about those free speech rights. So they have to show that they are not just protecting, but promoting uh, freedom of speech. So he can. Not just protecting, but promoting. Right. Amazing. Right. And so Amazing. he will have the power to, you know, the issue this kind of guidance as to what your policies should look like. And then at, the, at a later stage, you know, to go through university policies and say, you know, your policy on that, that claims that you can't offend anybody, you know, that's actually not compliant. So you have to rewrite that. And so part of this is going to be about how proactive is he going to be. And secondly, there's the power to fine universities that are in violation as well. So you've got... 
so finding me, me, powers as that, well. That's yeah. a big so finding is a yes. uh, tell us more about that. That's a really interesting feature. Yeah. So exactly. So if a university is you know, repeatedly violating um, academic freedom of, of staff and students, then yeah, it can be fined for for breach, and and so that is another disincentive. So it's as a you know you have what might a fine look like? I'm just curious. I know. How, like what 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 like what range are we? Is is the force of the fine going to be in the Ignominy, ignominy that you face because now you've been fined for that, or is there a real financial like what what size might a fine be, and who decides? Not, Do we I'm know not yet? Exactly enough of a legal expert to know what the legal wording means and the, the range of money. That, I mean, it is a substantial could be a substantial amount. I think probably the bigger issue would be leaking into the press. So part of this will also be about it leaks into the press, then the university gets embarrassed in the press, yeah. which might be the bigger hit rather than the fine. But I'm not, I can't be, I'm not enough of an expert to know, we won't know until this starts to happen, so how substantial this will be. I don't think it's going to be, if I had to guess, I don't think that the director is necessarily, he's not going to go crazy. I think he will well, do what's what, what needed. Is, what does crazy mean? I'm thinking about some of the endowment sizes in some American university. I'm like, well, going crazy could no, be. No, no. He's, he's, he, <laughs> British universities have no money anyway, so they can't do anything. But, but um, it's not so much about that, but it is simply about sending a signal, I think. It's and, fascinating. And, uh, yeah, so I think, what, what else is? There's the ombudsman, which means that you can go around your university when you uh, feel that your free speech is violated. You have to exhaust these avenues before probably you can move to the tort. You can't just jump to the uh, to the legal. Um, so you have to exhaust these other avenues, but it's not so onerous that the university can drag out all of these proceedings and Look, therefore avoid court. Tell us a bit more about the ombuds person, as we right. say in the U.S. these days. Sure. You say yes. ombudsman, so I can, I'll go yeah. with that with you if you I, like. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know what the word is now. That's a person you can go to to make an, to, to 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 plead your case, right? Uh, for for what range of things? For free speech violations? Ac yeah, academic, academic freedom academic more generally. Freedom under the under the law has been abridged, and therefore you you take a case now. So that now you are supposed to sort of first lodge you know lodge a complaint with your university, but then you know if you don't get satisfaction, you go to the ombudsman, and then there's a decision there as to whether you decide to, to take a uh, to take a case. Um, so but, the ombudsman yeah. is like the is the first person you go to. Yeah. So you find you're, you're you're Elizabeth Weiss or you're some person who's right. been denied access to some research materials or you've been fired or you've been told don't wear your Trump t shirt to department right. meetings, whatever it might be. You go to the ombuds person. Right. And this person will do what? Um, well, they will, if they find in your favor, then they instruct the university to so they invest so whatever they, they, they have whatever the power they to investigate? Yep. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and this is all, by the way, located on the sector regulator called the Office for Students. Yes. Which is, is it maybe like the Department of Education, perhaps, as, re as it regards to... Uh, as regards to higher education, something like that. May, so, may I put on just a little, a little um, a, okay. aside about the Office <laughs> okay. for Students? So I was um, asked to give a keynote for the, uh, an event last December put on by the Office of Students. And I said yes. One of my friends from Oxford was one of the people running it. And so I, I, didn't, I didn't actually know much about it at the time. So I had to look, look it up in Google. Anyway, I agreed to give this um, keynote. And it turned out that the keynote was at uh, well, I think maybe the first lecture of the day at 10 a.m. English time. <laughs> so I had to get up at what time would that have been? Five, four, yeah, yeah. four thirty. I think I, I think I was up at four, reviewing my notes to go online to get my to get my keynote address. Oh, no. So anyway, so I have ill feelings towards the office of stu <laughs> office for, well, office for students. But but yeah. so go on with the well. No, I was going to say it's it's, it's okay. much easier to come this way because actually. Um, our natural inclination is to get up quite early because of the time zone. I'm so aware. it's very easy to make morning I'm events. Um, but uh, yeah, so the so so this office for students is is the regulator for all aspects of higher education in the country, um, and so this this body of this office of ten people is is within the OFS. Now, of course, that's not the whole battle. I mean, the battle, you need to get somebody as the academic freedom director who believes in the mission. And Arif Ahmed of Cambridge, philosopher very strong on academic freedom, has been appointed to the role. So that's going to make a difference. If you appointed somebody who didn't really have their heart and was just going to do the univers university's bidding, then that could defang much of the process. So 
this is a process that does require, you know, the personnel is the policy, I think is another of these phrases. Sure. You do have to get the right people in to these positions to actually make them function effectively. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to watch um, how, he, how he carries out his duties. There is, I think, a four-year renewal. So politically, perhaps, Labor looks like they're going to be uh, in government next, and, and they may decide uh, after, I think it is four years, to you know, hire somebody else or try and defang this institution if he's moving beyond what they want. So there is a certain political dimension to which they can maybe exert some pressure to sort of prevent him from reforming at the speed he wants to reform. So we'll see how that works out. So that's, I guess we shouldn't look too far ahead to how it might, what the demise of this institution might be, but rather for now we should be thinking, how might it work and how might it be yeah. a positive step forward because it's such a remarkable it's such a remarkable thing that's going on in England. And, and it reminds me of something. And I'm not sure how closely you're following uh, UATX, the University of Austin in, in yes. Texas, um, which is a, an organ, a, a university, of course, as you know, that is um, trying to disrupt higher education by a, a new model. And one of the features that I find most interesting about UATX is they have this, last I heard, when I was there, they have a summit every year for the last two years. They bring a bunch, bunch of us in to talk, uh, give advice, and to learn what they're doing. And when I was here last spring, the big topic we were all so excited about was their new idea to have this external judicial body um, outside the university but associated with it that would serve a role such that any person could bring a, a claim to that court to protect their basic freedoms, including academic freedom, at that university against the president against the administration, against their department, against whoever it might be. So their idea, as I understand it, is to think, well, let's think about early America. Part of the American, American ideal of the revolution was not to, let, not to rely on the virtue of the governor, which most universities rely upon the virtuous administrator. We keep waiting for this virtuous <laughs> president to arrive and, and stay virtuous for the entire time. That often seems to go away. I think the early the founders of America would have said, don't trust in virtue, trust in institutional separation of powers. And what Austin is doing, as I read it, is they said, look, we're not going to trust in a virtuous president. We hope to get one, but that we're not going to trust in that. We're going to have some written rules, including academic freedom, and we're going to have this external judicial body which can enforce the claims of individuals against the university itself. That, that's a fascinating thing. I'm actually having Pano on this podcast soon, so we're good. the president, good to talk about that yeah. very topic. But this is back to this thing that's happened in the U.K., I see what's happening in the UK as being similar to that. That idea of the ombuds person (laughs) sounds like a judicial body that says, as you were saying from a little while ago in this conversation, the government plays a role as a check on the miscarriages of institutional autonomy uh, within these intermediate institutions. It says there people have certain rights. And you can't halt them in front of a kangaroo court. You can't deny them access to materials for research. You cannot you know, fire them or stop them from speaking when they say something you don't particularly want to hear. Right. So it sounds like it's that kind of a, it sounds like it's a, it's a, it's a judicial is it a judicial mechanism? Just yeah, I mean, that's, I, it, it's a very clever uh, design that UATX, and, and, and I, I am affiliated there as well, but I, I think that's a, a very clever idea, exactly. So, so it's, like your, it's like your idea, I'm sorry. It's, <laughs> yes. it's like your idea. No, uh, yeah. it is. I can't claim this is entirely, uh, or even largely my idea, but, but well, you the, the plural. UK bill. You, you plural but, then. Yeah, but, but, but I would say... You uh, Brits. Yeah, it's, it's something, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of a you know, Canadian pseudo-Brit, but no. But it is something similar in, in its intent, you're right. Is a sort of you're protecting uh, the liberty of the citizen against the the in a way the autonomy of the institution, and that happens. You know, we're used to that. If corrupt police departments are taken into special measures, schools which become corrupt, all of this is, is not controversial. And even universities, you know, the the, Ger- the East German universities after the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, essentially were taken into special measures, and a lot of academics were let go who were more or less parroting Marxist-Leninist dogma as their, yes. you know, so, so I mean, yes. this is not something that's dramatically new, but, that's right. but this is the application of a similar principle that, yes, the, the rot and corruption of liberalism can happen in the intermediate layer. Yeah, um, and, and, yeah. I love that formulation. That's really, yeah. it's really, I, I, I just want to say I really appreciate how you, take these problems of university life and university reform and you situate them 
within this broader political context, right? That's how, I mean, I think a lot of people in the U.S. who care about these issues, we zero in on the universities themselves. We kind of accept the premise of academic self-governance, maybe with gritted teeth, but we're kind of, that's how a lot of people see it. I mean, try to work within that system to reform it. But you really take that and you sort of see the bigger picture, that there was this, this, there, these are institutions existing within liberal democratic societies with a government empowered in certain ways, with individuals with certain legally recognized rights, and that's going to be permeating the institution. That's how you see it, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Now, of course, there are differences between public government-funded universities and those that are private, which can say, have their say, own ethos. Say, say, say more about that, because you and I were talking yeah. over breakfast about this, but say a bit more about how is, yeah. in England, I, I asked you this question, I'm still embarrassed to admit this yeah. on air now, but I asked you, <laughs> I, went, I went to Oxford, and I said, well, is, isn't Oxford a private university? It, it has rich, it has, endo- it has silver plates from the 1500s. I mean, yeah, yeah. is, is it private? Tell me how, what, what's the system? What's well, no, no, I mean, in, in a way, they are, uh, you know, they are public universities in the sense that they get uh, government student, you know, their students are on government student loans, or at least the domestic students are. And, and prior to that, the government would have paid them a, a sum per student. Right? But in so, the U.S., so, but in the U.S., our private, un- our quote, private universities receive enormous funding from the government through student loans and other, I mean, there are some yes. exceptions, of course, but uh, they're rare. There's some exceptions in England, too, I'm aware. Right. But, 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 but does, this, does this act, this government act uh, that we're talking about, apply to all the universities in England except for the, a few very private, fully private ones? Um, there's almost no private university. One of the few ones, by the way, is the University, university of Buckingham, where I'm going to start, be starting in October, and, and it sees itself as the only real sort of free speech university in Britain. Uh, but and Sorry, and, do they, yeah. and does Buckingham take no federal funds for students? Um, in terms of somebody, I think somebody can come in with a student. No, they do, I think, accept student loan. I don't think they are the Hillsdale. They're not right. following that. that. Uh, right. but, but I think that um, for the most part, you know, they're trying to carve out a niche a bit like UATX, but right. perhaps, you know, they have more of a conventional faculty and student body perhaps than UT- UATX does. But, on the, but, yeah. but in, the, in the large, yeah. in the main, looking across the English uh, university landscape, Oxford, Cambridge, Birmingham, all the different places. Right. Um, these are quasi-public entities. They're, oh, all, yes. they're all directly under the um, authority of the Office for Students, for example. Right. And they're only allowed to charge a maximum of a roughly 9,250 pounds per domestic student. So there's, there's, there's definitely a limit also to what they're allowed to charge, which has meant a big drop in their income with That's inflation right. over a number of years. One other piece of the um, UK bill that we haven't discussed concerns the um, student unions. Right. So uh, let me under, help, help me understand. Uh, they were quasi-independent um, structures within the institution. Tell us, tell us about that. Well, they that. claimed that they were, you know, private associational bodies that were not, shouldn't be considered part of the university. However, of course, they are you know, woven into, you know, they get money from the university, they use university facilities, and for all intents and purposes, uh, they are part of the university. And the the bill essentially makes it clear that they are part of the university, and therefore they cannot do things like no-platform people. Um, and if they do that, they are, li- they are under the same regime as the university in terms of um, having abridged the law, being eligible to be fined, and all of these other disincentives. And so I think this is and already, I should say, by the way, even before the law was passed, uh, it was already having an effect on behavior. So there was, uh, you know, the University of Essex was going after a couple of gender-critical feminists and backed off. Um, now, that was partly the media, but the media in combination with the new legislation and the interpretation of the law got them to back off. The University of Oxford uh, recently was going to no platform um, Kathleen Stock. Yes, um, of course. And and, and they backed off as well. Infamously. Well, the university essentially told this organization to to, to essentially not deplatform. And that was because of the law. So already that's having an impact. It's it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So you you see those as clear instances where the existence of the law, or maybe the law was, was the law already had already in the, in the first King, case it had King been. Charles signed yeah, yeah. it yet? <laughs> no, it had. But it was coming. In the, in the, in the, in the Essex coming. case, it was, in, in the Oxford case, I believe the, it had already gone across the line. It's but, fascinating. But yeah, it's um, fascinating. But but none of the direct, you know, the the director hadn't been appointed. Right. No no guidance had been issued yet, but still, the spirit of the law was enough, I think, to sort of 
discipline um, that Oxford um, sort of body that they couldn't simply. It's fascinating, and, and, and as you know, um, part of the reason we're so interested in what you're doing in the, in the UK in this way is because yeah. there are about a number of um, states, North Carolina and Florida, who have been trying similar kinds of things. Um, you know, one way to think of it is that there's been there's such disillusionment with a contemporary university. You, you and I both know the Gallup poll showing the crashing. The crash, the crash of confidence in universities it was always. It was low 20 years ago, but it's abysmally low now across the political spectrum. Though even more, more, more on the political right. But we, 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 one way to read what's happening in places like Florida and in North Carolina is that people are now denying the premise of that 1915 report that I mentioned a little while ago. They're saying, look, to to, to protect academic freedom, you cannot respect academic self-governance. At least you can't respect it too completely. Instead, you need to have academic freedom. You need to have some external, some exogenous shock, some external agent coming in and making that change. And so that's just, that's why we're so interested to hear, um, hear you talk about yeah. your experience in England. Yeah, and I, and I think that's right, and I think I would agree with that. Now, of course, the thrust of legislation is a little bit different in the two countries in the, in the sense that you could say the British law is very much about cancel culture and progressive, not just progressive, but generally illiberalism. Yes. Um, yes. In the U.S. case, a lot of the debates kind of come out of um, what, what I would say a concern over cr critical race theory or um, another aspect of what I would call progressive deculturation or attempt to attack certain Groups, it might be white people, it might be United States or whatever, um, and, and so issues yeah. of sex and gender are very much part of this in the U.S. too. For example, sex and gender in the Florida case, yeah, and and but but so the legislation is about you know maybe say banning the teaching of certain materials, and that's that's of course got a different thrust from this idea of banning censorship. Now, where there is a certain overlap is over this idea of freedom of conscience. So banning. For example, diversity statements is a is an is an attack on illiberalism. It's an attempt to check pro progressive illiberalism in universities. So, in that sense, it's similar in thrust to the UK uh, bill, and would be some sort of. Although I would say the UK bill did not, uh, no one had even thought of that, and they probably should have thought of that. But uh, diversity statements as a sort of form of compelled speech and violation of freedom of conscience. Um, but of course, on the critical race theory and critical gender theory side, of course, you can see where that actually probably is. You can argue the case. I think that that's a threat to, to, to academic freedom if you're if you're saying you cannot teach certain subjects. And so that I think right. is now actually classic, you know, government against uh, individual violation of academic freedom. And I don't think that's probably going to pass muster in Good. the courts. But you know, there is a debate, and I think this is where. You know, even though I just disagree in some ways with Chris Rufo, but this question about what government is obligated to fund. Yes, so, so good. I don't think that they should be banning anything, but I do think there is a question of are they obligated to fund something like teaching a course from a critical race theory perspective. I'm not, I don't believe they are obligated to do so, and I think so maybe the, the way this goes is towards, okay, we're, we, we're not going to ban this, but we're going to defund specific content. Um, because that's simply not something that we think is something that voters want to support. And by the way, it, it kind of violates people's white right to equal treatment, and therefore. Uh, and I think that's maybe where this is going to head in the U.S. case. But it, it's worth saying that there ir there's mutual lines of influence. So I was talking to a, an education, uh, a, a, a government, uh, a member of parliament in Britain who was quite interested in what some of the U.S. legislation is doing in terms of setting up these centers of nonconformity, yes, uh, yes, sort yes, of yes. classical liberal centers and saying that actually, because nothing like that exists in the higher education landscape in Britain, even off campus. Right. Um, and so I think those ideas could come to influence British thinking the next time the conservatives um, really have a, have a majority in government. It's fascinating if you think yeah. about, in the, in, the, in the case of, for example, Florida, well, I'll just generalize, and I won't use Florida as a specific example, but you know, we sort of see this drive towards academic freedom, a concern for imbalance, a concern that we're not really educating students. We're something like indoctrinating them. If everyone has the same political views and the certain things are being taught, if people think that there's an ideology being taught at universities rather than universities being places that 
liberate students to think in new ways, make them more sophisticated, allow them to become self-directing individuals, free citizens rather than um, cogs in some sort of someone else's political machine. And yet those dri that drive for academic freedom can lead to banning certain kinds of content. You put it because the legislators felt that those things, they didn't want to fund, they might not want to fund those kind of teachings. But that again goes right back to the academic self-governance point. There was some insight, I think, in that 1915 document, which has lots of flaws, but the idea that there's some special space, something special about the university space. We wouldn't want to have legislators coming in, changing the content of curriculums. Right. Every time they, their power changes, they change what gets taught. <laughs> right. We want the university not to be part of the political domain, but to be something like a, sh a city on a hill, if you might say, or like the, 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 pole, the, the uh, uh, Plato's, Plato's Academy, a uh, place in a grove on a hill outside the city mm. where people go to search for truth. And yet, as we've been talking, there may be a role you, you are suggesting for the government, for the polis, to set some rules to make sure that there is some separation, some, some genuine attention to the purposes of, the real purposes of, the, of those universities. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's not that the polis should set a red line and ban things. That, I think, is, is a violation of academic freedom. But I certainly think when the polis is funding um, public higher education, they do have the right to decide what they're going to fund. And, you know, in, in various countries, Australia, they, they, they don't fund the humanities to the same extent as the sciences. I, I also think it's legitimate for them to say, well, we, we, we are not going to fund, uh, you know, critical race and gender or, or what we would consider to be activist scholarship, we're not going to fund it. Right. But we're not going to, I don't think we can, you know, you, you don't ban it. You can, right. you can still teach it, but you're going to have to subsidize it, cross-subsidize subsidize it from somewhere else. Um, I think that's legitimate nice. uh, because, yeah, in a democracy you, you decide if you're going to spend on hospital beds or universities, and if you're going to spend on universities, it, it's perfectly fine, I think, in a democracy for the taxpayers to say this is what we want to get. But at the same time, um, you know, and if the university really, really, really wants to teach critical race theory and gender theory, they can do that if they value that, but they're going to have to find a way to subsidize that themselves. That's fascinating. Yeah. I have to have one last question. Yeah. Um, I think you know Arif Ahmed, who's a philosopher at Cambridge, um, who uh, we know in the U.S., most of us, because of his uh, campaign he led a few years ago to overturn a proposed speech code at Cambridge, a speech code that would have required that speech um, respect people's identities. And so he's sort of a hero of some of us here in the U.S. <laughs> for that reason. Um, Ahmed's welcomed the U.K. bill, but he adds a qualifier, and I want to ask you about this qualifier as my, my last question. Um, he says, Ahmed says, quote, the top-down approach is never going to be a complete solution, close quote. By top-down approach, I think he means a governmental approach. Mm -hmm. it, so I think he, so he applauds that approach, but he says it's not a complete solution. What do, you, what do you think of that? I think he's right, absolutely right, because most of the uh, self-censorship is being driven by um, sort of peer-to-peer, -peer, that sort of horizontal social conformity uh, pressure. And so even if you have the best Chicago principles in the world, that's not going to deal with most of the self-censorship distorting, which distorts the entire academic enterprise. Uh, and, and so I think he's right about that. I think Greg Lukianoff has this phrase that you know, a free speech culture is more important than the First Amendment, that, that right. you know, if you, if you don't have a free speech culture, eventually they're going to vote in changes to the law and eventually, you know. So That's ultimately right. you have to work on the culture, that longer battle of ideas, and that, you know, organizations uh, like AFA and like the Heterodox Academy obviously have a key role to play in changing minds because the nicer way and the easier way to do this was if you could get partisans to be more tolerant. If you could get progressives to accept free speech, to accept viewpoint diversity, then that correlation between a department being heavily, you know, nine to one left to right shouldn't lead to the kind of illiberalism that we're seeing now if the left becomes more liberal. And so I think that battle to try and persuade uh, the progressive who, who are dominant in, in many of these institutions to, to persuade them that free speech and toleration is actually a better way to go, uh, you know, that is probably more important than anything else. The legislation, this is all about kind of equilibrating what's happening, you know, the, the um, air pressure inside the institutions with the air pressure outside the, in the general public. That is really what 
that is about lifting the yoke of um, institutional censorship uh, that exists now. But ultimately, if you lose the culture, then then you're going to have democratic pressure even from outside to That's censor right. speech. So I think, yeah, I mean, this is this is a crucial battle, and and it's important to have both ends. It's not enough to say, oh, we just need to, f you know, fight on culture grounds, and we can ignore. Uh, what's happening in the institutions. You need, I think, a legislative approach and you Good. need the culture approach and it's wrong to reduce just to one. Eric Hoffman, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, John. It's been it, a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for watching this episode of Heterodox Out Loud. Our aim, as always, is to give you an insider's view of the perils and possibilities for independent thinking, objective scholarship, and open inquiry in higher education. If you like this episode, don't be shy. Hit like below and subscribe. Also consider subscribing to the Heterodox Out Loud podcast. If you work in higher education as a professor or an administrator, please visit the HXA website and join the thousands of people from all, all around the world who are working to support open inquiry. Until next time, I'm John Tomasi reminding you that great minds do not always think alike.